Gateway. Happy Sunday to you. I'm Kyle, I'm a pastor here, and it is such a pleasure to be here with you in this digital space that uh, by now we, we ought to feel like this is common space for us, that as we come together on these Sundays, or, or maybe you linger a little later on in the week, or I'd like to think you watch it again, uh, that you come back to the space and you are eagerly expecting to encounter God. In fact, as a church, this is what we do. We, we want to pursue the presence of God. We want to passionately pursue him in prayer. We want to contend for his kingdom to come here in Des Moines as it is in heaven. We want to partner with him in renewal so we might see the renewal of all things. And we actually believe that when we gather together like this, not because we have a zeal to believe it or we want to believe it, but because Jesus himself says things like, where two or more gathered in my name, there I am with you. And so I just, I want to encourage you right off the bat that it's not just you and me or, or me and your family that we're here together, that, that God himself through his spirit and his word is here with us. And that is a beautiful, a beautiful place for us to be. So before we get into this, I, I want to pray for our time, and then we're going to make our way through right into Mark chapter 9. So join me, if you would, in a word of prayer before we, we get after this. Father, we recognize that you are good. And just as, as we've sung songs to you, Jesus, exalting your name this morning, as we've uh, said that, those things aloud that are true about you, would, would they not just be words that we say, but would they be realities that we live into? And as we come to you this morning, Jesus, the living word, would you meet us afresh? Would you help our hearts to be formed into your likeness so that we may live into your way of love? Jesus, would you come? Spirit, would you lead us? And Father, would you show us your grace through the Son and the power of your Spirit? Amen. Amen. So it was about uh, two years ago that I'd read something I'd, I'd never encountered before. It was in this little book called The Burden is Light by a pastor named John Tyson. And uh, what, what Tyson brings forward is this concept called the winter script. And now he didn't come up with the winter script. It comes from a Canadian psychiatrist by the name of Eric Bernay. And, and the winter script we'll get to in a moment. But this, this idea itself, it, it goes something like this. Compete hard or crush it in modern vernacular. <laughs> like prove yourself and you'll prove your worth. See, for Bernay, if you could do this, you'd not only combat a counter script that you'd be living into, which he would call a loser script, but you could also begin to transform your identity into that of a winner. And so you would live into and out of this winner script as a way to reimagine how you live in the world. And the point that caught my attention as, as Tyson was talking about this is, is really how the winner script dominates the American culture. When you think about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, that's the winner script in essence. About go out and get yours, I'm gonna get my, I mean, listen to most songs on the radio and you'll hear little elements of the winner script embedded into those songs. 
But what caught my attention more than how the winter script is embedded in our American culture is how the winter script has steadily crept into the American church almost unnoticed. And then Tyson, to prove this point and to evidence it, he quoted this quote that I'm going to quote here at, at length because it was too good not to quote. It comes from A.W. Tozer and, and it says this, we are affected, and this is Tozer talking to the church. So if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, let these words kind of wash over your heart and see how they feel. We are affected by a kind of religious tick, a deep inner necessity to accomplish something that can be seen and photographed and evaluated in terms of size, numbers, speed, and distance. We travel a prodigious number of miles, talk to unbelievably large crowds, publish an astonishing amount of religious literature, collect huge sums of money, build vast numbers of churches, amass staggering debts for our children to pay. Christian leaders compete with each other in the field of impressive statistics and in so doing often acquire peptic ulcers, have nervous breakdowns, or die of heart attacks while still relatively young. And then this was the line, this was the line that caught my attention the most. You cannot argue with success. The winter script has indeed crept into the life of the church because even in our context, we're told that we must overcome. If something bad is happening, overcome it. In the name of Jesus, even, is, is a line that would be used. Could a triumph, Jesus triumphed over sin, Satan, and death, we can triumph. And these things are true, but this is slippery because they've been co-opted by a totally different agenda, which is to elevate yourself. So you have to perform, and eventually you have to win, but the irony of if you win, that means somebody else loses. That seems to be a bit different than the gospel of Jesus that we encounter. But that's only a minor problem. The major problem is actually our teaching text today. And to see what I mean, turn with me to Mark chapter 9, starting in this, verse 30. And we're going to see Jesus confront the winter script that resides deep in our hearts. This is what we read, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to him, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they, now this is the disciples, and this is Mark accounting for their response, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and now Capernaum, if you remember, is the home base up in the Galilee, so they're back there. This is almost the, the place of, of refuge, if you will, in the life of Jesus and his disciples. So there they are, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, and he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. See, of all the times... 
that Mark reports Jesus teaching. Very rarely do we actually hear what it is that Jesus goes on to teach. Mark is rather economic in how he presents the gospel according to Mark. (laughs) So we hear that Jesus is teaching the crowds and he'll teach him in various parables, but we don't hear all of the parables. Or he'll be teaching in synagogues, but we don't hear the content of the teaching. We'll just hear that he taught with authority. But right here is one of those rare moments when we hear Jesus' teaching. And it's rather surprising. And so just hear it again, if you will. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. See, unlike the parables, this teaching is clear. But its clarity doesn't make it any easier to swallow. And just by way of reminder, Jesus' teaching comes at a time in the history of Israel when Israel was itself subject to Roman imperial authority. This would be an authority that was exercised with a sword in hand. So you would have moments like this. If a Roman centurion, a soldier, a representative of the state came and made a request of you and you didn't comply with their request, the way they would get your attention wasn't to woo you or to send file a formal complaint. They would break your kneecap. This was how Rome kept the peace. This is how Rome authorized their authority, was with the sword. See, peace won or kept by violence. That's not true peace. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's liberating people from their hunger. He's feeding the multitudes. He's giving sight to the blind. He's casting out demons. And that's only like the last chapter and a half. With Jesus, the hope for true peace is in the air. And then Jesus goes on to say things, now for a second time, that the trajectory of his ministry is actually going to be his death. And what's curious to me is not so much Jesus' teaching, because that's clear. And and if you were to go back to chapter 8, when Jesus first mentions his movement to Calvary, the the, the cruciform nature of his ministry, you would see with even greater clarity there. So it's not Jesus' words that are curious to me. Rather, it's the disciples' response to Jesus' words. It's their silence. And it's the silence that masks the disciples' confusion and fear. It's like, man, if only we had a recent moment to reflect on the feelings of confusion and fear. That's called sarcasm. This is our moment. This has been the past five months, both internally and externally. Moments of confusion and fear fill the air. And in the midst of that, we do strange things, do we not? I mean, in the face of confusion and fear, for example, the disciples, they stay silent. And that might seem odd, but have you ever not asked a question because you didn't want to know the answer? Maybe you don't want to hear what your parents have to say. You imagine that they'll say no, so you just don't ask because better to ask for forgiveness than permission, that kind of philosophy. Or or perhaps you suspect an emotional affair with your partner, and, and so uh, you don't ask the hard question because you hope that it'll just... It'll just resolve itself and everything will go back to normal. 
That's what's called willful ignorance. And willful ignorance is not bliss. To ask a question is a vulnerable thing. To ask a question is to risk hearing something that you may not want to hear. And so the disciples, they stay silent. And willful ignorance is is one of our many fine-tuned methods to cope with confusion and fear. See, for the disciples here in Mark 9, it it is silence. It's silence that masks their confusion and fear. But that's not the only method to cope with confusion and fear. What's yours? When confusion and fear come, how do you respond? Do you you avoid the scenario? Do you lash out? Do, Do you flip the table and then all of a sudden start blaming everyone else? When confusion and fear come, like what? What mask do you put on? See, I ask this because we cannot not take stock of our response to confusion and fear because we are responsible for our response. And we're responsible for the repercussions of our response. And by the way, silence, that is a response. And we we see the beginning repercussions of that in the very next verse, in verse 33. Go there with me. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, well, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. See, at this point, Mark may feel a bit like a haphazard collection of stories. I mean, we've been in the gospel according to Mark since January, and we're going through it at a slow pace so that we might behold the face of Jesus, see ourselves in relationship to Jesus, see even like the shadow side of ourselves in the life of the disciples. But right here, this feels like an odd collection of stories. I mean, you have Jesus predicting his death once more, And then the disciples talking about who's going to be the greatest. So is this just a haphazard collection of stories? Well, if if that's the case, if that's what this feels like for you, just try, try this on. Try thinking about Mark like a painting that you've never seen before. And it's this collection of strokes and contours and colors. And at first, it's a lot to take in. You don't quite understand why the artist decided to put one palette of colors next to another. It doesn't quite seem to work. And so you want to step away. And if that's your intention, just stay here with, because um, if we think about Mark in this way, the thing that unlocks this beautiful painting that is the gospel, this literary art, is beginning to ask the right questions, to seek out the artist's intention. You see, two times now, Jesus speaks to his disciples, and two times his disciples are silent. And at first, their silence masks the fear and the confusion. Now their silence masks what appears to be shame. 
The first instance, it's like life through death that feels too absurd for words. Now, arguing about their position in the kingdom of God and arguing about their position in life with Jesus, that feels too absurd for words. And it's the contrast of the disciples' silence that then brought this question to my mind. In the middle of confusion and fear, don't we want to hear from Jesus? Don't we? Don't we pray prayers like, Jesus, speak to me. Jesus, give me wisdom. Jesus, give me clarity or discernment. Or Jesus, give me vision, etc., etc. Don't we pray prayers like this? In the middle of confusion and fear, don't we want to hear from Jesus? Well, I, th- I think we do, but I think that we want to hear from Jesus on our own terms. We want to hear from Jesus in our own timing and in response to our questions. Jesus' simple question breaks the silence and, and it exposes the hard hearts of his disciples. See, it's the contrast of these elements, the the contrast of giving yourself away in love, that life would come through death and the exaltation to greatness. It's the contrasting color palettes of these two stories that actually unlock the beauty of what's happening here. You see, the hardness of the disciple's heart is exposed. They're there jockeying for political power right after Jesus said that the way to life is through the cross. And what we begin to see is that the winter script is not a new phenomenon that emerged in the 20th century with some Canadian psychiatrist. No, the winter script, it reaches way, way back. It is sunk down deep into the heart of humanity. Just listen to this from the Hebrew Bible. This this is from Deuteronomy 10. This is what we read. It says, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and and, and do not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. See, these couple verses, they come from a section of the Bible where God is calling out Israel. He's calling them out to remember their corporate identity as the ones whom God loves, that he has, he's like cast his affections, he's set his affections upon them, that he's rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He, he wants them to remember whose they are. And in turn, God's desire is for his people to be known as a people marked by love in a world that is otherwise marked by selfish ambition. He wants his people to be a contrast community, a a community of of compassion. And that's why he calls them to cut away, to cut away, to circumcise the parts of their lives that have, have been given to unfair bias and inequality. See, the heart and the Hebrew imagination, it's the center of who you are. It's your mind, your will, your intellect. It all resides there. So the call to circumcise your hearts is indeed a call to cut away the parts that are given to unfair bias and inequality and injustice. 
the parts that have been deformed by a way of seeking after greatness in the world, a way that would use others as scaffolding to build yourself up. God says, cut that away. That leads to death. So how did it go for Israel? I mean, this was, this was back in Deuteronomy, at the end of the Torah, like, how'd it go? Not well, folks, <laughs> not well at all. I mean, most of the Hebrew Bible is telling us how the story is not going well, how the human heart continues to turn inward, how God calls out to his, his partners in renewal and how they turn away from him. We actually see the fruit of this continuing on in our passage. Go with me to verse 35. And he, now this is Jesus, he sat down. This is where Jesus often does more teaching, so we want to pay attention. Those are like little verbal clues from Mark. And, and he sat down and called the twelve. I think he's going to remind them of who they are. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. See, there's no winner script in the kingdom of God. So you go to verse 36 and you read this. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. See, to receive, this idea of, of receiving and being received in the ancient Near East, this is all about hospitality. But hospitality, hospitality is not all about being received or receiving. Here's, here's what I mean. Who would you want to come to dinner? Like a high school tennis coach or Roger Federer? And if you're not a sports fan, who would you want to come to dinner? A famous actor or actress or a struggling playwright? I imagine that even like for some of you, like Daniel's probably right now saying aloud, like of, of course he's saying Roger Federer and of course he's saying uh, the famous actor or actress. See, we just have this proclivity, we have this preference, we show partiality to people with status. Because when those people come over and we host them for dinner, some of their status, it rubs off. What's curious about hospitality is, is it, the Greek word for hospitality, xenophilia, the opposite of that, you know this word, it's xenophobia, which is the fear of strangers. Hospitality then, xenophilia, it's the love of strangers. And when that stranger has a lot of status, it's good. But when the stranger has no status, for example, a child who in Jesus's day has no status, has no social capital, in fact, no power, no credentials, really has nothing that can be leveraged in a status-seeking world. Well, to host that type of person, a child, one such as a child, well, that would verge on the brink of uh, being dishonoring. And church, that's the point. That's the point. You see, most of us, if we're honest, we want to be great so that we can be served. But Jesus says greatness, greatness is in the service of others. It's this upside down kingdom where the last, those are the ones who are first. And if you want to be great, then make yourself last and serve everyone. And really the point that Jesus is making is that these are the people 
the unseen, the rejected and dejected, these are the ones that God moves toward. It's like Jesus is saying, if you want to find out where God's hanging out, go to the people who've been cast aside. Go to the ones who can give you nothing. That's where you'll find God. This is a far cry from the American Jesus. And this teaching, if we might let it, more than most will confront our hearts because the winner script, it's not just way back then. It's not in Deuteronomy alone. It's not just in the disciples. It's not just in some Americana that we imagine back then. It's in our own hearts. And if we let Jesus confront us here, there may be a way forward, a, a reimagining of who we truly are as God's beloved. But that takes us confronting the confusion. It takes us confronting the fear. And more so, it takes us confronting the reality that our hearts are being presently deformed by the way of selfish ambition and greatness. See, because if our hearts, our hearts are always being formed and they're either being formed this is, I think, one of the true polarities in the world. One of the true contrasts is that we are being formed into the image of Jesus or deformed away from it. There's no neutral ground in formation. It's either formed into the image of Jesus or deformed. And if that alone doesn't seize you, doesn't catch your attention, hear these words from Jesus' brother. This is in James chapter 3, starting in verse 13, this is what we read. Who is wise and understanding among you? I hope, I hope some of us are. <laughs> By their good conduct, let them show their good works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. See, Jesus' brother, James, he leans in a little bit here on that part of the heart that God is calling his partners in renewal to cut away. The part that is unmalleable because it's turned in on itself. The part that is deformed. God says, cut that away. Be a people marked by love. And that's a, still a little fuzzy, but James's words here, how do they not get your attention? Earthly? Unspiritual? Okay, I don't really know what to do with those words. Demonic? Okay, James, you have my attention. Why are earthly and unspiritual there? Well, these are things that are in contrast to the way of God, the kingdom of heaven. But really, selfish ambition? A little ambition? That's demonic? So, in a season of my life, early in ministry, <laughs> I remember having a conversation with a mentor and I was talking, he was recently, he had just written a book and I was asking him, how does one get involved in that? <laughs> 
And he began to tell me a story, not about how somebody begins writing, but he began to tell me a story about ambition and selfish ambition versus godly ambition. And he began to tell me a story about how in his own ministry experience, life quickly turned to a place where he was known and seen and sought out that he was being asked to go and speak at events where people like Chris Tomlin were. And if you grew up in churchianity, you know that name. So he would be gone all the time, hardly seeing his family being raised. When he was home, he, he would, there would be tension and frustration. You see, the, the way of selfish ambition, it, it looks good. Because there, there's often big paychecks, there's celebration, there's accolades, but there's this internal discontentedness that manifests itself with the ones that we love. And it has this insatiable appetite. There's no satisfaction in selfish ambition, but godly ambition, he began to tell me, that that functions from a place of contentedness where the celebration, the accolades, the praise, that's cool, but it's actually more difficult to deal with. And I think about that story, that moment, because in my mind, I thought, this is the path of greatness in the kingdom. You, 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 you go to seminary, you um, go to a church, you become the senior leader in that church. Eventually you do a series that's really compelling and you turn that series into a book. And then you uh, do a book tour with that book and you have speaking engagements, that that's the path of, then in all those things you say, oh, I have opportunities to leverage those moments, to leverage my platform in the name of Jesus. And now is a platform bad? No, a platform is neutral, how we use the, the platform. That's, that's the point here. Because where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, that's where disorder and every vile practice abide. And our God, our God is a God who desires to bring order. You see, when the disciples heard Jesus was going to go to the cross, that disordered their world. But the irony is that their life is itself disordered. And Jesus's disordering words are the reordering of their life. This is the upside down kingdom where the last is first and life comes through death. See, Jesus discloses this cruciform way, this way of the cross, because it is at the cross that he intends to put to death the earthly, the unspiritual, things opposed to the way of Jesus and the demonic itself. See, the way of Jesus, it is the way of life. But its cost, its cost is what the world says is most valuable. Greatness. And I think that this challenge is, is an acute challenge for my generation. See, we grew up in relative comfort. Not many of my peers or friends, in fact, grew up in abject poverty. So we've grown up comfortable. And we want to be better. We want to make much of life. We want to tell a better story. We want a greater inheritance. And those things are, I think they're good. I think that there is a divine, a kingdom impulse. 
But when we are the telos, when we are the end goal of that greatness, it is a further distortion. It's a further hardening of our hearts because it's a line taken right from the winner script. So the gospel according to Jesus doesn't function along the contours of the winner script. How, how can it when Jesus is saying that the last will be first? And if you want to be great, then serve everyone. That's contrary to it. See, Jesus in these moments is inviting us, inviting us to take stock of what brings discomfort, of what elicits fear, of why silence comes when he asks, what were you talking about? And we know in our hearts that we were, we were profaning his name or we were talking about how we want to be great or how we were using others as scaffolding to build our own greatness. See, Jesus' simple question, it exposes our hearts. So we come here because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. It's, it's not a kingdom that you come into because you've earned something or because you've competed hard enough or you've studied enough or you've spent enough time in prayer. It's a gift. It's to be received, not earned. That, that's probably the grossest thing for most of us to hear. Because if you're like me, we've spent most of our life earning. We try and earn approval. If it's not from our parents and it's from our employer, we try and earn status through our looks. So we despise our bodies. We, we, we try and earn the favor of a loved one by like killing who we are in order to please them. When Jesus at every turn is saying, I'm going to the cross because it's there that I will put death to death. I will put the decay and the deformed reality of the human heart. I will put that all to death by bearing it all. That in that space, in the crucible of the cross, life will begin to, the seedbed of life will be planted in a tomb and in glory life will come, but it comes through death. And so I have one simple question for you. Do you want to be great? Then be ready to die. And I know that that sounds really odd, especially in like <laughs> these odd times that we're living in, these intense times that we're living in. I don't just mean your physical body. I, I mean, be ready to die to your selfish ambition because the gospel makes space, makes space for you to lay down your efforts, to lay down your longings at the feet of Jesus and to be received. For you who have ever felt cast out, especially by the church, women, people who have same-sex attraction, like people who are just different, any of you who have been cast aside by the church, Jesus says, I'm found with you. I'm right here. I'm for you. What are you talking about? He's interested in you. He desires to know you. 
You don't have to live by any script, any script other, other than one that is just being said, I've done it already. The, the doing is over because it's already been done. It's, it's finished in Jesus. So let us rest there, church. Let us rest there. Let's let Jesus rewrite the script for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your perfect love, we can actually be received. And I just ask that through the power of your spirit and your word, you would convict us of the areas that we hold you at arm's length, saying that we can do better. I pray that you, Spirit, through the power of the Word of God, would convict us of the areas where, uh, and the people that we have stepped over to make much of ourselves. Would you, would you burn in us a passion for deep repentance so we would turn and look like a community marked by compassion and love? Would you help us to know that we are seen in your love, Jesus? Increase our faith to receive you, we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.